0: We're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 6 today. We're looking at verses 20 to 38. It's the Sermon on the Mount as recorded in Luke, and then next week we'll finish it up by looking at verses 39 to 49, the rest of the chapter. But today we're going to look at Luke 6, beginning in uh, verse 20. This is what Luke records for us. I'm reading out of the New Living uh, Translation, NLT. It says, Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor. For the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only your happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will be turned to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds, for their ancestors also praised false prophets but to you who are willing to listen i say love your enemies do good to those who hate you bless those who curse you pray for those who hurt you if someone slaps you on one cheek offer the other cheek also if someone demands your coat offer your shirt as well give to anyone who asks and when things are taken away from you don't try to get them back Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. But I say, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid, and then your reward from heaven will be very great, and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate, just as your Father is compassionate. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn others, or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and pouring into your lap. The amount that you give will determine the amount that you get back. Our passage today is, uh, in terms of worldly wisdom, very counterintuitive, almost contradictory. Uh, A series of of things that we would never wish upon ourselves, and Jesus pronounces these uh, realities as something that is good and blessed in our life. He begins with a series of four blessings and uh, four parallel woes that really relate to each other. And that word blessed uh, occurs more than 30 times in the Gospels, and all but two times are recorded in Matthew and Luke. So 28 of those are in Matthew and Luke, and only two of those are in Mark and John. Originally, the Greeks looked at that word blessed as describing the happiest state of the gods, kind of like the gods, they believed in a plurality of gods, and they they perceived the gods as kind of living above human suffering and labors, like they were just blessed, they were above it all. Later on, the term became uh, used to describe the condition of any person who experienced blessing and goodness in their life. It had almost always related to earthly goods and material possessions and, and, and values. And in contrast to this, the Old Testament writers, those who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit contributed to our Old Testament, they rec- recognized that the, the truly blessed man or woman, the, the truly blessed person, was one who trusted in God, one who hoped in God, one who waited for God, and one who feared and loved God. That was the person who experienced God's blessing, the person that really uh, was successful and victorious in their life. And there's a number of passages that relate that. One is Deuteronomy 33:29, 29, which says, Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And finally, Psalm 40, verse 4, another. How blessed is the man or the woman who has made the Lord their trust, and who has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. So in contrast to the culture and the world, the The Bible, the Old Testament in particular, was constantly lifting up that the blessed person was the one who trusted in God, the one who waited upon God, the one who looked to God for their provision and for their their hope. This sermon that's recorded in our passage, and also next week's passage, as I said, as we finish up, is really a shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's three whole chapters that expand the shortened version that we have before us today. Both sermons, both here and in Matthew, uh, are addressed to Jesus' disciples and the crowd that had gathered for miracles and for healings. Both begin with Beatitudes. It's kind of a formal word for the blessings and the pronouncements that Jesus issues. Both conclude with the same parables and both have generally the same content. However, in Luke, you don't have all of the the uh, Jewish parts of the sermon that Matthew includes, uh, like the explanation of the law and the details of the law. And, and that makes a lot of sense because Matthew wrote to the Jews. That's why Matthew has the most prophecy and fulfilled prophecy in his gospel of any of the gospels, because he's trying to. Tie in that Jewish component to other Jews, who that means a lot, as well as the details of the law. But Luke wrote to the Greeks, and the Greeks really didn't care much about the Jewish law, and so there's not as much of that in our passage today. Well, as well as the blessings, as I said, Jesus pronounces a series of woes as well. And in the Greek, in the original language, woe is, is basically uh, like unfortunate. You know, it's a warning, It's it's basically saying you know this is a bummer you know you you don't want this you don't want that and it's uh, part of that woe was issued to those whom Luke describes as rich and as we know from reading the Bible there is nothing inherently wrong with having money if you look at the patriarchs the Old Testament fathers uh, they were blessed abundantly and had more than than the the other people in the culture at the time. And so it's not about having money, but it's what the rich in Luke's passage represented. And there's three main things that, that they represented that Jesus is speaking out against. The first is that they chose present gratification over future blessing. They chose present gratification over future blessing. They were constantly looking for recognition and affirmation and attention from their peers rather than a letting God be the one that praised them. They also disregarded spiritual realities. They kind of just turned their, their nose up at, at spiritual realities. They kind of lived as if those weren't true and as if they weren't relevant. And finally, um, Luke is speaking out against the rich, particularly those who had become rich at the expense of others. And we read about that in James, in James chapter 2 of his letter, about those who mistreated the poor and the disadvantaged and exploited them in order to build wealth for themselves. And so as Luke is denouncing the rich, as Jesus is denouncing the rich in both Matthew and Luke, it's not just rich per se, but it's those who are independent of God, that are not living in dependency upon him, that have kind of disregarded spiritual realities that have taken advantage and exploited the disadvantaged and those who are seeking present gratification rather than future blessing the word love that's used repeatedly in our passage as well you should know it comes from the greek word agape and agape love describes god's love it's selfless unconditional love it's not human love which is described by other terms there's there's like seven or eight different words in the Greek for love. You know, we just say love today, but the Greeks were very specific. There was erotic love, or eros. There was a a possessive, protective love, like a parent for a child. And there was brotherly love, which was phileo. That's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Then there was agape love, God's love, which was selfless and unconditional, and which described a genuine concern for other people irrespective of their attractiveness or their worthiness or the likelihood that they could pay you back, that they could reciprocate any kindness or blessing that you extended to them. And that, that's God's love. It's, it's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in great detail. A kind of love which gives and loves seeking nothing in return, not keeping a record of wrongs not blowing a trumpet and drawing attention to itself. And it's beautifully described in that chapter. And that's the kind of love that Jesus is commanding his disciples and the crowd to display to others. Well, in our text today, in our passage, I believe Jesus teaches his disciples and the greater, uh, not only the 12 that he chose, but the greater number of disciples that were gathered there, uh, three very important things that would guide them In their new role as his followers. And the first thing that I see, the first kind of overarching thing that I see in our passage, has to do with new realities. That's point one in your outline. New realities. Jesus lets his new disciples know that as his followers, they would experience new realities. And because of this, they needed to reorient themselves according to his truth and not the world's wisdom. They needed to reorient themselves according to his truth and not the world's wisdom. You know, I think a lot of us come to faith in Christ, and then we continue to operate and live with the world's mindset, and we have certain expectations of of what life should do for us and, and what we should achieve and just how things should go. And then when we encounter trials and hardship, we get angry, like this isn't what I signed up for. I wanted the best of what the world has to offer, and I wanted the security of what God has to offer, knowing that when I die, I'll go to be with Him, you know, and that He's protecting me and looking out for me and comforting me and blessing me. I want it all, you know, and that's not what the Bible paints. The Bible doesn't just talk about future reward. There is also a present reward, very much so, but... It's not as if we follow the Lord just for the payback. And I think that so often we get discouraged and we get disgruntled because we're still operating with the world's mindset and values that we've adopted from our culture, the surrounding culture. And we need to know that when we come to the Lord, we need to reorient our perspective. There's a whole set of new realities. And in our text, These new realities are not in the form of commandments and they're not even particular attitudes or perspectives that we should display. They're simply statements of fact. They're statements of fact, not to be argued or debated. They're simply statements of fact. And Luke begins in verse 20 by stating that the poor are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And and I love the parallel passage. Again, that means the same passage passage Described in a different gospel in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He really brings light to what Jesus is saying. In Matthew 5, 3, it's not just the poor are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but it's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. And so Jesus is not just talking about those who were economically and socially distressed, he's speaking of a condition of, of people who. Whose whole dependence and confidence is on the Lord, because they don't have human resources to lean on or to fall back upon. It's it's those who are living in complete dependence upon God. They are blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and as we know, it poverty or prosperity is not the main thing. I I I've heard many of uh, an insightful sermon that has talked about the fact that, you know, you can grow up poor and be more uh, conscious and fixated on money than a rich person is. It's all you think about. How am I going to pay for the next thing? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And and growing up in Santa Barbara, in in my family, it was kind of the lowest rung of middle class that existed in Santa Barbara. You know, we moved there in 1969. My dad made $23,000 a year as a computer programmer for Burroughs. So, and we had a mom that was a nurse, but chose to stay at home and raise us as boys. So we didn't have a lot of money, and we were always thinking about money, how to earn money, how to get money, how to pay for this and that. And in many ways, we were fixated on materialism because we didn't have it. And so the issue is not whether you're poor or whether you're rich. The issue is whether you Allow whatever condition you're in to foster a a humility before the Lord, a dependence upon the Lord. Um, So to be poor in spirit isn't to lack courage, but it's to acknowledge our own spiritual bankruptcy. And it means to depend upon God and God alone for all that we need and all that we're seeking. Next in verse 21, he says, blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied And again, in Matthew, it's completely different. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So Jesus isn't just talking about a physical hunger, you know, like, hey, it's great. You'll, You'll be blessed if you just wander around starved all the time. You know, it's great if you, you know, are constantly looking for your next meal. How blessed, you know, how happy you'll be. But he's talking about a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And I'm not just, I'm not downplaying the spiritual, I mean, the, the physical component of the realities that Jesus is talking about, because in the very verse, next verse of our passage, verse 22, uh, Jesus talks about the ostracism and, and the insults and the physical uh, part of what we're going to experience as believers. Matthew takes it even further in chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, and calls it persecution. Like, And Jesus says that in another place in the New Testament. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience hardship or persecution. So I'm not downplaying the physical side, but we have to look at everything in context. And it's very helpful to not just read Luke, but to read Matthew and how he describes it too, and to try and blend the two together. And harmonize them. And Jesus is saying, "We're blessed in our hunger and in our tears. We're blessed when people hate us, exclude us, insult us, and slander our name." And as crazy as these pronouncements sound, they're true because God declared them to be true. And I guess that's part of our our lesson today: is do we believe what we believe as Christians? Not always because it makes sense and it's logical but because Scripture declares it. And what Scripture declares might fly in the face of the reality that we experience, but we have to hold on to the truth of that with all of our heart and with all of our soul because we know that it's true because God declared it. And we live in such a way that we live for the fulfillment of that truth, not questioning that truth, not constantly arguing that truth, but just holding to that truth and believing it. And I believe that's part of our passage today. And as I said before, I believe that blessing is not just about a future reward to be earned. It's also about a present grace to be experienced. Blessing is not just about delayed gratification, living for that future reward. It's also about a present grace to be experienced. And I think that's exactly the experience of the Apostle Paul. That's described for us in Scripture. Remember, Paul had been, first his name was Saul, and he'd been persecuting the church. And Then one day on the road to Damascus, he was struck blind while while riding there on his horse. He had that encounter with God, who he realized very quickly was the risen Christ. You know, who art thou? And the voice that responded is, I am Jesus, whom you've been persecuting which had to be like the most startling thing for Paul because, you know, Jesus had died. So this meant that Jesus is alive, which also meant, oh, Jesus is God. And all of that's coming. And then, so Jesus directed Paul to go to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And at the same time, God spoke to Ananias and said, I'm sending you Saul. And Ananias' first reaction was, are you kidding me? This guy's been persecuting the church and killing people. I don't want to deal with him. But listen to what God said to him. He said, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There was a, a challenge that Paul was going to have to live through. And we read a lot about the Apostle Paul's challenge in second Corinthians chapter twelve, when Paul prayed that God would remove his thorn in the flesh, and we have no idea what that was. Uh, people have kind of postulated or speculated that it was physical uh, a physical uh, in, impairment we you know whether it was blindness or his stature or whatever it was. and so you can go on and on about that, but Paul was hamstrung by something and he prayed that God would relieve him of that and instead God said you know my my grace is sufficient for you whatever hardship that you're going through my grace is enough and not only is it enough but my strength is made perfect in your weakness and I really believe that's part of our lesson today is that when we encounter things that seem like a a bum deal by the world's perspectives we are blessed because god's grace is sufficient and god meets our needs presently in the midst of the struggle as we lean into him as we rely upon him and i guess i got two questions one is do we believe that the second is do we experience that and i think that many of us never experienced that because when we hurt And when we're treated poorly, we medicate. You know, we do. And I'm not just talking about drugs. I'm talking about medicating in that we turn to everything but God to soothe ourselves and to fill that emptiness and that hurt. We turn to other people. We turn to money. We are well off enough that we can rely upon a lot of other layers of stuff to fill the void and to to fill the loneliness and the hurt and the rejection and all the pain that we experience before we turn to God. But when you're at a place in your life where you have nowhere else to turn and you finally lean into God, and maybe for the first time in your life you experience that He's enough, that His grace is enough, you experience His love and His goodness, then you know what's being spoken of here. That God's strength is made perfect in your weakness and in my weakness. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. Also, part of the blessing that Jesus speaks about, both in Matthew 5 and in our passage here, is at the very end of our chapter. And it's about how God is using the trials and the storms of our life to forge a firm foundation for our lives that can weather any storm and any trial. God is using all of the negative experiences that you encounter and that, that, that I experience as well to forge in us a firm foundation so that when we go through these tough times, we'll stand strong. Well, the second, thing that, the second aspect of Jesus' teaching has to do with new responsibilities. New responsibilities. He's informing his disciples that those who have chosen to align themselves with him They now represent him. And as his representatives, they have new responsibilities. And we see that beginning in verse 27. We are to love our enemies and love those who hate us. It's not good enough to follow the world's wisdom, love those who love you and, and, you know, avoid those who don't like you and even, you know, pray for their demise. No, love your enemies and do good to those who hate us. Verse 28. Bless those who curse us, pray for those who mistreat us verse twenty nine when someone strikes our cheek, offer them the other when someone steals your coat, offer them the shirt off your back and then verse thirty if anyone asks you for something, give it to them and don't seek repayment don't don't seek reimbursement crazy counterintuitive seems to be counter you know. Conflicting with the world's wisdom, at least. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you know, it's not just about whether or not you physically murder somebody. It's about the anger and the rage that you, you know, try and hold in check and that keeps coming out. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you've heard it said by your ancestors, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say to you, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. So Jesus is putting it on a whole nother level. He talked about that with adultery. It's not just whether you've been physically, literally unfaithful to your spouse. It's whether you even look upon other people lustfully and, and, and create scenarios in your mind out of the lust of your heart and your mind. That's the higher standard. Then he talks about going the extra mile in Matthew 5 where he says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, Carry it two miles. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away those who want to borrow. You've heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Matthew kind of expands this. And Jesus is is talking about new responsibilities, where it's not just meeting the bare minimum or the minimal requirement that the world expects, but it's going beyond that so that we will stand out as a city set on a hill as lights that shine for all the world to see. Huge difference. The third part of Jesus' sermon addresses new reasons, kind of a new rationale for doing what we're doing. He gives his disciples uh, reasons why they should expect new realities in their life and why they should assume these new responsibilities. And the first reason is given in verse 23, because a great reward awaits you in heaven. And that's not why we do what we do, but it helps to know that God will right every wrong and he will bring justice one day. The second part of that is also in verse 23 where he says, you know, the Old Testament prophets experienced the same thing that you're experiencing. And you're like, oh, that's great, you know, that doesn't bring me much. The point is God was faithful to them. God took care of them. God made things right with them and he'll do it for you as well. Another reason comes in verse 31, that we should treat people the way that we want them to treat us. And then in verse 35, he says the ultimate reason, because God is kind and gracious to evil and ungrateful people. Then verse 36, so we should be merciful just as our Heavenly Father is merciful. You represent me, so you need to act as me and be my representatives. Finally, in verse 38, he says... By the standard that you measure, it will be measured to you. So that's not a way of leveraging how God's going to treat you, but it's like at least treat people the way that you want them to treat you because it's going to come back and bite you if, if you're anything less than that. I was reading this week uh, one of our early church fathers who was a historian. His name was Tertullian. Tertullian lived at the end of the 2nd and the beginning of 3rd century A.D., And it's helpful to look back uh, from a few things, to to see how the people in in early centuries interpreted Jesus' words and how the world reacted to that. And Tertullian uh, describes or records a debate, a conversation between a critic of Christianity and between a follower of Christ. And I thought you would find this fascinating. Octavius, who's a critic of Christianity, charges this. He says, look, some of you, the greater half, or the better half as you say, go in need. You suffer from cold, from hunger, and toil, and yet your God allows it. He seems to even enjoy it. He will not or cannot assist his own followers. This proves how weak he is or how wicked he is. A guy by the name of Minucius Felix, the Christian, responds, and he says, I now come to the accusation that most of us are said to be poor. That is not to our shame. It is to our great credit. Men's characters are strengthened by stringent circumstances, just as they are dissipated by luxurious living. Besides, can a man be poor if he is free from want? if he doesn't covet the belongings of others, if he is rich in the possession of God, rather, he is poor who possesses much but still craves for more. I thought, man, is that not a commentary in our world today? Possessing much but still craving more? And so it is that the man who walks along a road, the lighter he travels, the happier he is. Equally, on this journey of life, a man is more blessed if he doesn't pant beneath a burden of riches, but lightens his load by poverty. Nevertheless, we would ask God for material goods if we considered them to be of use. Without a doubt, the God to whom the whole belongs would be able to concede us a portion. I love that. We would ask God for more stuff if we felt like stuff was the answer. But here's an early Christian in the second century saying, you know, the lighter you travel, the easier it'll be. You, you can have very little but be full of the richness of God as your possession and your inheritance. And you can have a ton and still crave for more. And Which is better? And so he says, we... We lean upon and we find peace in the one to whom it all belongs and know that at any moment he could give us more if he wanted to. And I thought of the verse that Paul says in Philippians 4.19 where he says, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And the question is whether we believe that. Whether we believe that in each and every moment of our life and our struggle that God will give us exactly what we need. And so we live at peace knowing God is aware of our situation. God knows our struggle. He knows what we encounter. And it's not that he just enjoys letting bad things happen to us, but he's forging in us and through us a firm foundation that will fit us for eternity. And he wants us to believe and trust that he's able at any moment to give us what we need. Let's pray.